That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. At least to start out, I want to get into some stuff that is apropos of our moment, of our time, you know, that speaks to it, but is a slightly different, uh, you know, shall we say, take on it all. There's an op-ed over at The Guardian, not an op-ed, a news story over in The Guardian, about how uh, two-thirds of successful suicides are done with guns. And the success rate of a suicide attempt with a gun is 90%. You know, I wrote a book about this, The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment. It's prominent in the book. And that people have been buying guns like crazy, and they're expecting as a consequence of all the economic difficulties that the economy is suffering. Now, you know, you look at the stock market, rich people are not suffering, big corporations are not suffering, or at least the CEOs and senior executives, they're still taking big paychecks and things. But working people are suffering badly. We've got uh, 20, officially, I believe it's 26 million people out of work. In all probability, the actual number is probably closer to 60 or 70 million, particularly when you consider under work. And people are losing their health insurance left and right. I mean, there's a real crisis going on. This is real stuff. And the specific point of the Guardian op-ed, or article rather, is that, you know, get ready for a wave of suicides. You know, I hope and pray that that is not the case, but we do know that as unemployment goes up, historically, so do suicides. It's just, it ties into it. And so I wanted to talk about resilience. I wanted to talk about what we can learn from times like this and how we can get stronger as a consequence of it. And not just ourselves, but to teach these techniques and tools and strategies of resilience to our children, to our friends, to our loved ones, to our family, our neighbors, our parents, our siblings, our spouses. And what does science tell us about this going back into history? There was an interesting article in the Lancet, which is the journal, you know, the British Medical Journal, last week that was talking about how it referred to the generation of young people growing up, the, the people who are basically under 21 right now, as Generation Snowflake. And, you know, having been protected and, you know, 
kids don't walk to school anymore and you know all this kind of stuff and I get it and the Lancet is warning there could be a profound toll on young people's mental health but there's another side to this if you look at and some of us are old enough to actually remember people who lived through the Great Depression World War one the Great Depression World War two my dad grew up during the Great Depression, lived through World War II. My grandfather served in World War I. He emigrated from Norway in 1917 and then <laughs> you know, joined the army the next year and went off to, to fight in the war and was a wounded veteran. And, and we look back, we call those, you know, Tom Brokaw, I believe, coined this phrase, the greatest generation. And yes, there were mind-boggling numbers of people, including my father, who were wounded by the war emotionally wounded by the war. During the, the month or so before he died, my father told some of us and our families some of the stories of what happened during the war that he just always kept in. But that said, there was also an extraordinary resilience that came out of the Great Depression. Granted, it was a crisis for many people in many ways for you know, quite some time. But there was an amazing study done on the island of Kauai back in the 1950s, maybe it was the 60s. It was a it was a 32-year study. Kauai was an island back then that was owned by one of the big sugar companies. And the people living on the island were what you might call migrant workers, except they didn't migrate. They were very poor. It was terrible poverty. And the rates of child abuse were huge. And these were the people who were out there working in the sugarcane fields all day, every day. They were basically treated like slaves. You know, not quite as bad as slavery, you know, in the American South, but they had no rights. They had to buy everything from the company store. Their pay barely paid for anything. Their housing was substandard. Their schools, the extent that they had any, didn't do much. So these researchers, this was uh, done by a developmental psychologist named Emmy Warner. And they identified 698 children who were at high risk for child abuse. And instead of intervening, what they did was they tracked these children for 32 years, well into adulthood. Now, if you consider the bell curve distribution that you see of you know, pretty much most things in most populations, at the center of that bell curve, you'd say, okay, this is resilience. And on the, say, far right of the bell curve is super resilience and on the far left of the bell curve is super fragility okay this is just normal some of us are very fragile some of us are very resilient most of us are kind of halfway in between well what they found in this study was that the children who had suffered horrible deprivation and child abuse throughout this study as adults what they found was that yes there were some who were incredibly fragile as a result of that that proportion was somewhat larger than it would be in the normal population. But the proportion who were incredibly resilient was also larger. And so the bell curve became more, you know, kind of like a tabletop. There was actually more resilience that came out of this. So what I want to talk about are the things that we can do to build resilience. What those kids did to build resilience. One of the big correlations that Emmy Werner found was that the kids who told themselves that they were victims of themselves, that their situation, their fate, their trauma was their own fault. They were the ones who were most likely to be highly fragile. 
The ones who told themselves that it was somebody else's fault, it was their parents' fault, it was the circumstances, it was, you know, the big sugar company, it was their fault. Those were more likely, and because that was the truth, actually, were more likely to be more resilient over time. One of the things that they in particular found among these children was that they developed autonomy. They became their own agents. Resilient people generally embrace autonomy. Yes, I can do this. And they tend to be very flexible in how they deal with things. They seek out new experiences because they're not afraid of new experiences. Highly resilient people. Now, again, you can train resilience. This is one of the other things that came out of the Kauai study or, you know, the follow-ups to the Kauai study was that when you taught children these skills, you taught them resilience and that you can teach adults these skills and teach resilience to adults as well. It's, it's fascinating stuff. I'm going to go through the list, and we're going to talk about, you know, what's your advice for staying at home? How do you get through these times? How do you maintain resilience? This is the Tom Hartman Program. How do you, in fact, build resilience? Coming up on the Science Revolution, as the Georgia governor rolled out a new death panel coronavirus plan, Dr. Andrew Glickson is here on the coronavirus versus climate extinction. While we're dealing with COVID-19, we're also hurtling toward extinction. Dr. Justin Frank drops by saying Trump could see dead bodies from coronavirus and just step over them. What? Also, Greg Palast explains the secret history of the Deepwater Horizon, BP's second blowout. It's the 10-year anniversary for Deepwater Horizon's debacle. Find the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Jessica in Riverside, Illinois. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. My new hero is the reporter, Olivia Nussi, who asked the president, has the loss of the many American lives as much as in the Vietnam War, let you deserve to be president again. And that was amazing. I saw the clip of that, and he basically, uh, you know, refused to take any responsibility whatsoever. Right, and he ups the number of the people. Well, 60, well, 70. He doesn't care how high it goes. So I want to answer your question, how do you get through? The strangest thing, I've been woken up from nightmares in the last couple weeks, and last night I had two very bizarre dreams. The first one was I was trying to make it through all these different landscapes, struggling to get through mountains, woods, and I ended up in the desert. And the strange thing is people were just dressed in normal clothes, but the men in the background, their ties were off, their shirts were hanging out, they had no suit coats on. It was such a strange dream. But then I had an even stranger dream. It was, this is so bizarre, it was Sesame Street characters, and the count was counting all the American deaths. Oh, my. And I, yeah, I just, I fear for the people who, um, the nurses and the doctors of their nightmares. And my wish is for the Republicans who could not impeach the president, the idiot president, to wake up from nightmares every night. That is my wish. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, dreams, they really serve two purposes as far as any, you know, the psychologist can tell. The first is this is the hippocampus, the short term, the one day storage part of the brain and the brain itself kind of collaborating to decide what are we going to remember out of this and what are we going to throw away as a memory for mm-hmm. today. And, and how then the second is pro- exactly is how to make sense out of it all. And it sounds to me like your brain is struggling to make, or not struggling, that's the wrong word, but you know. No, the, I'm the, having a difficult time. The news makes me want to throw up at this point. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, sometimes it's a good idea to just take a break from that. I have. Afternoon. I only watch you and Amy Goodman. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Yes. And you may even need to take a break from me occasionally when and I get Amy into this stuff. Too. She, she yeah. states the yeah. facts. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a lot to be said for being informed, but there's also mm -hmm. something to be said for mental hygiene. You know, yesterday afternoon, I realized that I was... I was working on a on a book that I'm writing, but I was I was sitting downstairs. The TV was on, and I was doing some research, and I realized that it was getting to me. I was watching Trump on TV, and it was mm-hmm. I mean he came on, and I just I left. I went out on the back porch and, and sat out there in the sun, and you know yeah, to everyone has to take radio. care of themselves, yeah, make themselves number one. Yep, Amen. Jessica, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV there in Riverside. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Tom Harbin here with you. So I'm talking about resilience. One of the things that they found from this Kauai study, and it's it's an amazing study, numerous books have been written about it. I reference it, I I believe I reference it in my book, Walking Your Blues Away, which is a book about how to deal with trauma, is that adversity itself doesn't break us. It's our response to adversity that can break us. And many people come out of adversity much stronger And I believe that Generation Snowflake is going to grow up to be the next greatest generation as a result of growing up in the midst of this time. And the key to this is for us to help the young generation learn how to do that and to do it ourselves, to apply these things ourselves. So many of these kids have never really faced serious adversity, and now they're facing incredible adversity. Their family is melting down. Their parents are fighting because they're experiencing massive economic stress. They can't go to school. They're locked in their rooms. You've you've got online bullies. All this stuff. We We can help, and we can help ourselves. So... How do we build that resilience? What were the things that we have learned about these studies? Marty Seligman, by the way, Dr. Martin Seligman, he wrote about learned, well, first of all, he did research on learned helplessness. He did studies with dogs that today would be illegal. This was back in the 60s. And then later he did some brilliant work on learned resilience. He passed away in the last decade or so, as I recall. So What do people do who are building resilience? Number one, they seek out new experiences. They're not afraid of new experiences. And when new things come along, they say, oh, yeah, okay, this may be 
Uh, it's refer- Marty Seligman refers to it as agreeable adversity. This is going to be tough, but I'm going to get through it. See, one of the things that most of us don't realize is that we all have an inner voice. We're all maintaining an inner dialogue. We're all carrying on a conversation with ourselves all the time. And most of us never pause and say, wait a minute, what is the story I'm telling myself about this? Because if the story a person is walking around with is, oh, my God, how am I going to make it through? This is going to be a disaster. Oh, my God, you know, it's a, you know, I'm going to melt down. I'm going to, you know, then resilience gets shattered. On the other hand, if the story that a person tells themselves is, this is going to be tough, I may have to change my lifestyle, I may have to downscale a little, but hey, you know, I've been through tough times before, and other people have certainly been through much tougher times than this, at least I don't live in Bombay, uh, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, you, you figure out the, the stories that work for yourselves, for yourself, but look at your internal dialogue and consider making an attempt. You can actually change your internal dialogue. In fact, there's a whole field of psychotherapy devoted to this. It's called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT. You can look it up. So, number one, new experiences. Number two, get control of your internal dialogue. Number three, find guides. Hang out with people who lift you up and avoid people who tear you down. Number four, decide that you control your fate, not fate control your life. You know, I realize that sounds glib, but it actually is a decision. This is that. In fact, that is that internal dialogue that those children in Kauai made. Is this my fault or is this somebody else's fault? Am I, can I take responsibility for how I feel? See, the old cliche, you can't control what happens to you, but you can always control your reaction to it, is absolutely the key to this whole thing. Look at your life. Examine your life. One of the most powerful things you can do is what's called anchoring a previous resilient state. Think back to a time in your life when you experienced adversity and you grew from it, you strengthened from it. This is uh, the kind of relationship advice, for example, that's commonly given to young people when they have a catastrophic breakup in a relationship. Well, you've had other relationships before. Think about how you grew from that. Think how you learned from it. Practice being good-natured. Practice being positive. Some of the actual details of these things, that's all kind of psychological stuff. Go to bed every night at a reasonable hour. When you get up in the morning and get up, take a shower, get dressed, you know, don't give up your daily routine. Don't hang out in bed. Exercise every day. Be thankful for every day. Practice thankfulness. The most powerful prayer that you can say is thank you for this. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for thank you for everything. Back off the amount of news you're consuming. Be careful about excess alcohol. Raven wrote a great post about this over Democratic Underground a few days ago. I want to give credit where credit's due. Take at least one task a day and try to finish it. Learn a new skill. Great time to learn a new language. And finally, Consider writing a journal. Start keeping a diary. You know, we live in amazing time. Wouldn't you love to read the diary of somebody who lived through the, through the flu of 1918 or through the Black Death back You're in the 1300s? To the Tom Hartman program. Yesterday, I was reading Cotton Mather's diary from the 15 or 1600s here in the United States about his children dying from the plague. It was amazing.
So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com, and this is about just a totally bizarre story about these three guys with no VA experience, uh, not even veterans, who are all big shots down at Mar-a-Lago that Donald Trump has put in charge of the Veterans Administration functionally. And their association, one of them is the head of Marvel Entertainment, their association with Johnson & Johnson and the New York Stock Exchange. And Johnson & Johnson, the big drug company, taking this very, very cheap chemical ketamine, tweaking the molecule a little bit, and rolling it out as a new anti-suicide drug, Spravato, that in clinical trials caused six people to die, three of them by suicide, and none of the people taking the placebo to die. And now Trump is telling the VA, you have to buy this highly inflated priced drug from Johnson & Johnson, and the Democrats want to know what's up with the VA crowd, guys. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. I just want to finish this thought I kind of ran into the break with, which was keeping a journal. I've done this on and off uh, throughout my life. Sometimes it's a diary kind of journal. Sometimes it is, mostly it's letters to people. I wrote a book or published a book some 20 years ago called uh, The Prophet's Way, which was a collection of letters that I'd sent to other people about things that I was doing, you know, traveling around the world with this guy, Gottfried Mueller, out of Germany, doing international relief work and, and starting a community for abused kids up in New Hampshire. And I've always found it very therapeutic. I mentioned that I was reading Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a fundamentalist preacher back in early America, in the, as I recall, in the 1600s, in the 17th century. And five of his 11 kids died of a measles wave that washed over New England at the time. And I was doing some research on that whole issue, and I came across his journals, and I just got captivated. He was telling about what life was like during the time and what was going on in his family and expressing his anguish, but at the same time talking about the work that he was doing. And he was a person that I never had, frankly, much respect for because he was such a fire and brimstone guy. But it just, you know, blew my mind. I mean, it was, I couldn't stop reading it. It would be fascinating to read, you know, basically the diaries of people who had lived through things similar to what we've lived through. So, you know, as uh, Henry Wadworth Longfellow in his uh, poem, The Psalm of Life, you know, and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time, footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's something main, rocky main or whatever it is, a broken and forlorn brother seen shall take heart again. You know, I mean, that it's so there's a lot that we can do to put ourselves together and keep ourselves together. Pat in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Pat, your thoughts? Yeah, hi, uh, hi, Tom. I was born in 33. I grew up uh, through the whole of London. Our compensations we had to make because of, because of we were hungry all the time, we had no clothes, and we were bombed on a regular basis. And for the most part, we didn't get much school. School was closed for a whole year, and then, and then we spent most of the rest of the time in air raid shelters. So we learned all the songs of the whole world because the teachers didn't know what to do with you. got 400 kids in a, an air raid shelter, cold and damp and wet, and a 60-watt bulb every 15 feet. You didn't do any learning. So I learned, didn't learn. And... Um, my whole education was ruined. I never could achieve what I wanted to achieve as a, uh, as I would have done if I'd had a you know, a school. And, and I, I, I now I feel deprived. But then I, that's that's the way I hear. Um, I've written a book uh, which is called Memories of an Octogenarian. So I've been bringing, really thinking all the things that uh, happened to me. What 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 was pre war London looked like? Who who was um, how how was food delivered? And so I've gone through pre war London, then talking about um, the London I grew up in, 
and then uh, post-war London, and then immigration, of course. So um, mm-hmm. it's it really makes it interesting to how I felt about it. Um, we always had someone to blame. It was always Hitler, Noman's Jerry, mm-hmm. and um, we were. We never lost our house, but we lost every window and every ceiling two or three times. And so it was, uh, we were threatened. I lost friends. Um, it, uh, and I, I worry about my grandchildren because I don't think they're as adaptable as we were. We didn't expect to, to have anything. There was nothing to buy, so we made our own checkers boards. We made our own, um, we used paper. Toilet paper was on a, well, you, that wasn't anything you could have, so we used newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. We had to adapt so many ways. We had to grow our own vegetables, otherwise we starved. Um, you try living on one egg a month or two ounces mm-hmm. of margarine a week per person. Uh, and, and, you know, the rationing went on until 1952. I oh, remember wow. seeing bananas in 1938, and I never saw another one until 1955. So even though the war stopped in 45, it didn't finish for us. It got worse. With Lend-Lease quitting at the end of the war, we got hungrier and hungrier, and bread was rationed. And I was a teenager then and constantly hungry. And um, so it was a very disruptive period, and yet I, I had someone to blame. My parents were great. Um, my father didn't go to war because uh, he had a varicose ulcer and they didn't want anything to do with him. So he um, joined the um, old men's brigade that had would man the ACAC uh, guns that Churchill put on every hill around London. And they were supposed mm-hmm. to shoot down the German planes because the, ger- the guns were <laughs> misaligned and the men who did it had never been trained. So it was a complete waste of time. But it sure made the men feel good. And mm-hmm. um, so, how are, how are my children who, you know, it, it bothers me now when I see them cutting strawberries, taking the top off a strawberry by taking a lot of the fruit with it. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I hate to see people use carrots and then cut the top half inch off where it's a stem because you have to eat every last little bit. And how right. adaptable are children doing that? My mother was like that, yeah. And to a less extent, my father. But uh, my mother uh, grew up uh, quite poor as a, as a result of the Great Depression and, and uh, here in the United States. But yeah, these are, these are the things that, that shape our lives. And, and actually, I believe my facts are right here, but uh, subject them to a fact check. But I believe that during the bombing, during the Blitz, the bombing of England, um, suicides actually went down. And part of that probably was Churchill, you know, uh, telling people, we will get through this. We will fight to the end. We will do whatever it takes. Well, that's part but, of the British uh, spirit, though. And you know, the ca- there was a lot of camaraderie. Everyone was on the same side. Mm-hmm. There was no, um, yeah. even though we had German Jewish neighbors, no one ever complained that they were either German or Jewish. And um, then we had, within the school, which was a sort of middle-class to lower-class school, um, we had children who were mixed race. They weren't treated badly. We were all in it together. It uh, it, it didn't. And, of course, we only had women teachers, and we had 48 children to a class. And we behaved whenever we got a chance to sit down in a, our classroom seats, mm-hmm. which was not very often because we spent most of the time yeah. in the in the shelter being bombed. So yeah, this I is the coming was, together. 
I just say, I think it's inured me now to disaster. I'm not, nothing's going particularly well right now for me, but, uh, but then I'm 86, so how am I supposed to complain? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I've lived this long and survived, and I will survive as long as I'm supposed to be allowed to survive. But uh, I'm caring for myself. I don't have to have help. I cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I fractured my spine, so I, I can't garden like I used to. But uh, mm-hmm. And I look at people saying, well, I was astounded at the um, 9-11 bombing. People say, I said, but it's only 3,000 people. <laughs> Why are you complaining? <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I, I couldn't believe that Americans were making so much fuss about an, an event which would happen overnight in England. Yeah, after having lived through the blitz. Pat, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. That's, that's a, a, a brilliant story, and, and you so put things into perspective for us. Thank you so much. And I would add, by the way, one of the things Pat talked about was how people came together. And this is one of the things that concerns me about our current leadership. I saw Brian Kemp on TV this morning, the governor of Georgia. And he said, one of the things the media is trying to do is tear us apart, separate us, you know, cause us to dislike each other, words to that effect. No, that's what Trump is trying to do. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. It, it's literally their strategy. A good leader, you know, if, if Trump wanted to be a good leader during a time like this, he would take a lesson from Churchill, from, from Pat's experience and Pat's time. And he would be speaking about pulling together. And, I mean, what was Franklin Roosevelt, in his inaugural address in March of 1933, his first speech as president, in the depths of the Great Depression. And, the, and World War II was way off on the horizon. I mean, Hitler had not even risen to power yet or was it merely in the process. And Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning. There was one other word, you know, blind, essentially fear that paralyzes us and prevents action moving forward. I'm paraphrasing it, and I'm sure I'm, it's not word for word, but it's, it's quite close. And that was, that was his message to the American people. You know, don't, let's not live in fear. Let's stand up, take a deep breath, you know, talk, push, put our chests out and pull our heads back and move forward. And that's what we all can do. We can all figure out a way to use this as an opportunity to learn resilience and move forward. And yes, there's going to be really tough times, but we can You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today I'm reading from The Prophet's Way, A Guide to Living in the Now. It's actually a compilation of diaries and letters that I sent to friends on travels around the world. And it's kind of an autobiography, I suppose, of sorts. This is from Life in a Teepee. It's on page 25. And it starts with a quote from Lenny Bruce. Every day people are straying away from the church and going back to God. My best friend through school was Clark Stinson. We met when we were 13, and instead of pursuing the normal pastimes of teenagers, we spent our time studying Sanskrit. We had an old study guide book I found in my father's library, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and arguing minutia from the Bible. Clark's mother was interested in metaphysics and shared a book called Autobiography of a Yogi with us. Years later, when I went to Detroit with her and Clark to attend an initiation in Kriya Yoga by Yogacharya Oliver Black, the oldest living disciple of Yogananda, I recognized Yogananda's Kriya technique 
as identical to an ancient Coptic exercise Master Stanley had taught us years earlier called the Cobra Breath. I introduced Clark to Master Stanley and Lee, and Clark and I began a serious study of spirituality. We were both in our late teens by then, and Clark had recently married. I was recovering from a painful breakup with a girlfriend, and we agreed that to do our spiritual work best, we should seek isolation. So Clark and his wife bought a teepee, and I bought one, and we three gave away everything else we owned in the world, except some clothes and our spiritual books. We bought 100 pounds of wheat, 100 pounds of dried fruits, some basic camping equipment, and got a ride into, up into Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where an old trapper led us on a three-day trek back into the Chippewa National Forest to a small lake that isn't on most maps. We spent the summer there, Clark and his wife on one side of the lake, me on the other. Three days a week, we practiced silence and did meditation and prayer every day for hours. I had a pet tachnid fly, a small insect that looks like a honeybee, but is actually a fly. When I'd meditate in the morning on my blanket outside my teepee, he'd come and hover just over my right hand as if he were drawing nourishment from me. Sometimes he'd hover there for as much as 20 minutes. Occasionally he'd land and walk around with careful steps like an astronaut exploring a distant but friendly planet. I also shared my teepee with a large and furry brown and black wolf spider who came out at night as the sun set and picked the sleeping mosquitoes off the canvas on the west side of my teepee. I watched the play of life and death, predator and prey. Here's an odd synchronicity that Carl Jung would have appreciated. I haven't seen a tachnid fly for years, but as I'm typing these words into a laptop computer on my back porch in Atlanta, one just hovered over my left hand for a few moments and then landed. He's here with me as I'm sitting as I'm typing, sitting on my hand. One cold and rainy afternoon, Clark and I were walking through the woods looking for berries and edible plants. We'd gotten pretty skilled at identifying what was safe and what wasn't, and we're filling a bag with leaves and fruits. This must be what our ancestors lived like, Clark observed, hunting and gathering. Except we're vegetarians, so we're just gathering, I said, joking. But to Clark, it wasn't a joke. Seriously, what we call civilization started when humans started farming. But humans like us were around for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before that, fully conscious, awake, aware, thinking and feeling just like us. But they were hunters and gatherers instead of farmers. I said, without agriculture, there'd be no civilization. It was an interesting thought. Remember Miss Hemmer, Clark said? Miss Hemmer had been our eighth grade biology teacher and one of the best teachers I'd ever known in my life. Clark and I had conspired to make her life difficult, but we also loved her and learned more from her each month than from any of our other teachers in a year. And she was a huge fan of Margaret Mead. Clark said, she said that in primitive societies, there isn't suicide, depression, drug addiction, all that stuff. The noble savage, I said, shivering. I'm skeptical and cold. And the Indians who lived here once were probably cold, too. He shrugged and said, this life seems much more natural to me. At least I had to agree with that. A few days later, Clark came running over to my teepee with his Bible all excited. Look at this, he said, pointing to Genesis 4-2. It says, Cain was a tiller of the ground. The Bible is talking about how the first murderer was also the first farmer. And in the 25th verse, it makes it clear that Abel, the brother who was not the farmer, was the one who loved God the most. So what, I said. It's a classic archetype of the oldest child being the most beloved, but also the one who screws up. It's all over, from Greek mythology to Shakespeare. Don't you see, Clark said? Adam and Eve were gatherers like we are now. They walked around the Garden of Eden and picked up food. But then they tasted of the knowledge of good and evil, of life and death. That's your food supply. You live or die by it. When you live as a gatherer, you live by a whim of nature. If there's no food, you die. When you begin to store up food, you can defy nature and survive a drought. You then have the power to control life, 
the knowledge of life or death, or good and evil. So the tasting of the apple must have meant that Adam and Eve experimented with agriculture, and in doing so, they defied the God of nature. It's a warning. It's saying that the primitive life of hunting, gathering, and herding was more in accord with nature's way than is agriculture. Clark dove deep into the issue, but I didn't consider it all that important at the time. I couldn't see how when people started farming after the end of the Ice Age, it had been such a bad thing. After all, it brought us modern society and science. Clark, however, was totally certain that agriculture and what he called the organized ones were responsible for the coming death of the earth. The book, The Prophet's Way. Vicki in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Vicki, what's up? Well, I called to speak um, to resiliency, and um, actually I wanted to talk about how to build resiliency because it results in a sense of self-reliance and confidence and autonomy. And so mm-hmm. when I've looked at, I should preface this by saying I'm a retired operating room RN, and one of the things that goes on in our everyday emergency situation is seeking out new experiences because they're forced on us. We have to adapt continuously with new skills and new everything. And so it always keeps us growing in that way. And one of the things that takes place that's a necessity is structure. And with structure, Mm -hmm. we are organizing the situation so it's under our control. And I think also when you look look to the military, they take all kinds of people from every kind of situation and background, teach them how to get up at a certain time and get their bed done, get their teeth brushed, get their face washed, get dressed, show up, exercise, go out. You know, it's structure. The first basic thing they've got to learn is not how to be a good soldier, but how to introduce organization and structure in, in their life. And that's the thing that's called upon, especially when you're a nurse, because it has to be done in a methodical way. And what this does is you focus on things that give you a sense of being able to control chaos. And with that in place, you are not thinking about any of the disaster, you're thinking about problem solving. And one of the big things it's taught a nurse is to assess and reassess change appropriately. And so this idea of a journal is the same type of thought in that it causes one to capture and so you can reflect and then you can assess and come to some perception that allows you to put it in a perspective that allows you to really understand how this situation ended up creating who you are as far as your self-resilience and et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to speak to the importance, if you want to build resiliency, it, cause it, it starts with basic things, and that's I've been telling my grandkids, my, my, the kids, to make sure their grandkids, when they're stuck at home all the time, aren't hanging out. Oop. Vicki, I think you pushed the wrong button because you just vanished. And I have 30 seconds left. It wouldn't be fair to put another person up. Vicki's points are so well taken. 
and you know take it from somebody who's been on the front lines i mean you know being in an operating room you know there are going to be people dying right in front of you there is going to be you know crises right in front of you and and how do you deal with that you know the same way police officers emts firefighters uh, you know people who deal with crisis one of the uh, soldiers for that matter one of the things that you find is that they rely heavily on structure so that they don't have to worry about all those things associated with the structure and they can focus on the crisis and that's that's brilliant and thank you so much for that call and uh, for for sharing your experience with us Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We just had a call from a woman who was an operating room nurse, a surgical operating room nurse, and, and who talked about the importance of structure as a precondition for resilience. If you're going to deal with crises, you need to make sure that all the small stuff is taken care of. And you see the same thing with soldiers. You know, you've, you've, the first thing you learn in, in boot camp is how to make your bed, right? How to take care of the basics. So the, the fundamentals, it's, it's just, just absolutely, absolutely brilliant stuff. Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, what's up? Well, Eric, good morning. Just uh, thinking about your sort of posture on the recovery opportunities from uh, you gave the example of uh, Kauai and how a group of kids had one kind of result and another kind from the other side. And it just got me to thinking that there are, you know, so many opportunities. I'm optimistic like you are that the adversity can can create a, a growth experience and, and, and that sort of thing and an opening up. And But then you do also have people that end up developing a severe 
a sense of self-protection and isolation and even curmudgeonly and um you know you've got that sort of thing your depression area or not area your oppression uh time uh sort of personalities and other kinds of affectations like bitterness and stubbornness and for whatever reason from you know caused by certain trauma um, these are all adaptive mechanisms eric and like I said, with the, with the Kauai kids, one of the things that they found was that the kids who internalized the crisis and said, this is, you know, I'm out of control. Basically, the story that they told themselves was, I'm a victim. I'm out of control. I don't control this. I have no circum, you know, I have no control over this. I'm a victim. Those are the kids who are the most fragile and the most wounded. They, by and large, learned that story from their parents. The kids who told themselves, this is a crappy situation, but I am still in control of how I feel, and I'm going to choose to to do something positive out of this. Those kids mostly learned that story from their parents as well. Back to you, Eric. Well, I think our president did not learn that lesson. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's, I think, the, the biggest crisis, frankly, we're facing as a country right now is is not the you know the you know what's in the news you know the the whole medical thing i think the biggest crisis we're facing is that the guy leading this country is himself dysfunctional and doesn't have the ability to cope with things he's always used wealth as his coping mechanism uh, wealth and brutality and those are not functional uh, forms of resilience he is not a resilient man and that concerns me tremendously eleanor in Cary, north carolina eleanor you're on the air Hi, Tom, and thank you for taking my call. It's an honor to talk to you. The reason I'm calling is I wanted to talk about, kind of defend the snowflake generation, as the person called it. I think that that's grossly underestimating the children who are 21 and under. Mm-hmm. We can't forget that they have, you know, they're, they're the ones who have lived through school shootings, preparing for school shootings. You're right, and they're facing climate change. Um, yes, and climate change, you know, my, and my daughter, she's also very political, as are many of her friends. They're much more aware of life and politics and getting help for yourself than I was when I was, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in the That's an excellent 70s, point. I think, so. you know, for many of us who grew up during Vietnam, especially the boys, you know, who were looking at the possibility of going off to, to die in Vietnam, it was a similar thing, you know. There was, it was kind of a tempering, you know, right. trial by fire era. And, and uh, you're yeah, absolutely right, Eleanor. These kids are going through well, this. You're right. You know, maybe the very young ones, you know, that's a whole different ballgame. But the ones who were mm-hmm. teenagers, you know, yeah. I think they're in a way more resilient than some adults are. I think you're right. I think you're right. Thank you for that. That's an, a really uh, Im- important recalibration. Thanks so much. Randy in Arlington, Minnesota. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind? Thank you so much. My husband was a teamster, worked at the airport, listened to you on the radio until he could get so close to home. Now he's retired. We listen to you every day on television. 
And he's probably downstairs surprised that his wife is on the phone talking to you. So thank you for your program. And I wanted to tell you is resilience. I love to hear the lady that was from London. I'm a dental hygienist by trade. I've had patients that talked about being in these air raid bombs for over four years. I think, long story short, a lot of the things that we older people aren't doing are telling these stories of how difficult it was in the Depression and how hard it was in World War II. My dad was in the Battle of the Bulge. Like a lot of veterans, they don't talk very much when they saw a lot of action. But are we having our kids watch all this on television? Do they? Do we really need to hear about complaining for five weeks of being indoors when we don't realize what our other generations have done? Yeah, uh, another good suggestion point. is how to, how to make things better. Um, we don't get stronger unless we have stress. Look at the animal kingdom. Yeah, you're right. And trees, trees that are not subject to the wind. They actually, in indoor buildings, they have to hire people to shake the trees. Randy, thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is from the introduction, Coming to America. I carry something special in my wallet. My cousin, Jean-Paul Pierre, gave it to me before my first day working for President Barack Obama in the White House. Remember this, he asked, as he handed me an old snapshot, the corners creased, the colors washed out. I gasped. I had forgotten the trip our extended family, me and my cousins, had taken to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1982, just before I turned eight. There we were, seated on the base of the railing in front of the south lawn of the White House, with the Truman balcony in the far background. Jeannot gave me the photo to remind me of the pride my family takes in my success, of all of the people in the Haitian-American community I carry on my shoulders. I kept that photo with me from then on. Every day when I got money out of that wallet for a cup of tea or a bagel at the cafeteria in the Eisenhower Executive Office building in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but glance at the image of that timid, skinny young girl sandwiched between my much older cousins. Back then, I was so shy that the nuns who taught kindergarten at my Catholic school called my mother in to say that they were worried about me. She doesn't play with other children, they said. She just keeps to herself. Over the years, I worked hard to overcome that. You've made us all proud, Jeanette told me. Code for how unlikely it was, inconceivable really, that anyone from our family could get to the White House. My Haitian-American father and mother, a New York City taxi driver and a home health care aide, didn't closely follow American politics. They were more likely to discuss the viciously oppressive dictator dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who ruled Haiti from 1957 to 1986, than any American president. Like many immigrants, they came here to find a better life for their children. I was proof that their struggle had been worth it. As an openly gay woman of color, I have also had my own struggles entering the world of politics, which even now can feel like a boys' club. Despite the record number of women who ran and won in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections, women occupy less than 23% of the seats in Congress, even though more than half of the population is women. But when I was in the White House, I was usually too busy to think about how I had gone from being that meek schoolgirl with braids to the confident woman in a crisp tailored pantsuit who worked as Obama's regional political director in the Office of Political Affairs. I was the eyes and ears of the President of the United States in 12 northeastern states, from Maryland to Maine. The political affairs wing has three offices in a corner on the first floor of the EEOB. The Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a beautiful historic building close to the White House's West Wing. The West Wing is home to the Oval Office, where the U.S. President works. 
The first time I flashed my security clearance badge to the sharply dressed Marine standing guard at the double door entrance and walked into the West Wing, I remember looking around and thinking, this is so small. It looks so much bigger on TV. As a campaign operative for Senator John Edwards in 2007 and 8, I binge-watched the NBC 1999 to 2006 series starring Martin Sheen as a fictional American president named Josiah Bartlett. Still, it's hard not to be awed. I also felt a constant sense of responsibility because I was a black woman working for the first black American president. When you work at the White House, whether it's for a Democrat or a Republican, you have to put in a 12 to 15 hour workday or more. There's a reason why most people don't last a whole four year term. And under President Donald Trump, turnover among his staff has occurred at an historically high rate. It's an absolute joy, but it's also a heavy lift. I like to get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning to prepare for our first meeting at 9 o'clock, and I rarely left before 9 p.m. I would go home to my furnished basement apartment in a semi-sketchy part of town in northeast Washington. I had taken a pay cut to work in the White House. My place was cold, dark, and dreary, but I knew I didn't need more than a place to crash. A good night's sleep was never a given. There were plenty of times that my boss emailed me at 1 or 2 in the morning expecting me to get back to him ASAP, and I did. In those days, I walked around with a BlackBerry phone, the preferred device for politicos for White House work in one hand, and in the other hand, another BlackBerry issued by the Democratic National Committee for political work. Taxpayers did not pay for President Obama to do fundraisers or other political events, so having different phones for different purposes kept us honest and out of trouble. Because I was so intent on doing things the right way, I even carried a third phone, a personal one, in my pants pocket for calls and emails with family and friends. This was not a requirement. I just wanted to be extra mindful. The stakes were too big to make a mistake. The pressure was high, but I was proud of my role and wouldn't hide it. When phone number three rang and I would tell the person on the other end I had just gotten off Air Force One of the president or I was about to make a trip with Vice President Joe Biden on Air Force Two, they would say, Kareen, listen to you. You don't even realize how cool your job is. Getting involved in politics can be intimidating. If you weren't participating in debate club or Young Democrats of America or Model United Nations by the time you finished high school, I know it can feel like you have no choice in politics. That's why I'm writing this book. I am proof that that's not true. I was a late bloomer. You hear stories about folks whose passions and talents were already obvious by the time they were in kindergarten. I am not like that. I first ran for office at Columbia University, and I wasn't drawn to a career in politics until after graduate school. Just how little did my family discuss American politics growing up? Meet Michael Dukakis. The first time I encountered politics was late on a Thursday night in July 1988. I was 13 years old. My sister Esther was six and my brother Daniel four. My siblings and I were curled up on my parents' queen-size bed watching the television that sat in the corner of my mother's wooden vanity dresser. Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. Brian in Tacoma. Hey, Brian, what's up? So you were asking if you think Trump can win, and I think popular vote, not a chance. He's never had a chance to win the popular vote, and it's only getting worse. But Electoral College, uh, yeah, I think he's still the favorite, unfortunately, because he only needs to monkey around with, like, two states, and then he's got it, you know? like So yeah, I'm very More like concerned. three or four, but yeah. Oh, I agree with you. I'm very concerned, too. And uh, their voter suppression is a big piece of this. And, you know, their opposition to mail-in voting. This is why, you know, the billionaires, they don't want mail-in voting because they know that if it's easy to vote, Democrats win, Republicans lose. It's that simple. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. Do I think that Trump could be reelected again, given this boondoggle 
disastrous thing you did last week? And my answer is, hell yes, I think I think so. And mm-hmm. the reason is, to start with, I recommend a book. It's called, uh, a good friend of mine wrote a book called The Hidden History of the War on Voting. <laughs> you have a few minutes, you ought to, you ought to read that. that sometime. And that's kind of why. I mean, we, yeah, Donald Trump wasn't elected to begin with. He was installed through a stolen election. And right, same as George I W. Think, Bush. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I remember we had a discussion, you and I did, before the last election. And you said, I'm scared to death that Donald Trump is going to be president. And I said, Tom, I have really, I really do have more faith in this country than that. And I was just, I laughed it off. And then when the returns came in, I realized, oh, I've been had. I actually thought that votes were how elections were decided in this country. I realized right then this was stolen. It was stolen, obviously, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. There were more precincts in those, I mean, statistically, completely impossible number of precincts that were decided in Donald Trump's favor that were less than 1%. Michigan, he won by, what, eleven, uh, 10,700 votes, supposedly he won, which should have triggered a recount. But because in Michigan there was a Republican administration, governor, attorney general, secretary of state, those have both, all those three of those have flipped now. There may be a protection in that regard, but I still think there's going to be, I mean, you can see it now, the war on the post office. This is what he's up to. They will stop at a time. The guns that you see in those marches, this is, fascism has taken a foothold. It's it's here. And it's we're not going to get rid of it we're not going to get rid of it we are going to be battling it for decades it's here it's taken a foothold it's supported by russia it's already here one thing i wanted to point out about the post office since everyone is recognizing what's going on now but the story about it was called the postal enhancement and accountability act of 2006 this is what the republicans in the lame duck session before they lost the Congress in the 2006 election, passed a bill that was going to force the post office to fund their retirements, maybe something like 75 or 80 years in advance. Right. Uh, you've talked about it on this show. And it would have required for the next 10 years that the post office kick in an extra $8 billion. They had to have $80 billion, And this was going to sunset expire in 2016. What happened with eight? that? Is, I thought it was five. Huh. You sure it's eight? It was $8 billion a year. Okay, I'll revise my, uh, I'll try to revise my memory. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you, Paul. Well, it, was supposed to, it was supposed to accrue $80 billion, so over 10 years through 2016. And what happened right. to that was they paid the first installment of the $8 billion, but it really took a hit. And the reason that they did this is because the post office operates on its own, and it's profitable. And they were about ready to convert half of their Jeep fleet, the little Jeeps that drive around, to electric. And the post office, being the largest single customer of fossil fuels, the fossil fuel industry went nuts. And so they they had to find a way to hamstring the post office. And so they thought, oh, we'll take that, because they had the money. They were going to do the conversion. They said, no, that money is going to go into a long term. uh, We'll make you fund your retirements. Well, after the first installment of the first $8 billion, they knew they would sink if they had to do this. This was impossible. So the lawyers for the post office reread read the bill and said, well, what happens? What's the penalty if we don't pay it? I mean, it can't be more than $8 billion. And what they found is that there was no penalty 
it was no, it was a ruse. There was no penalty for not paying it. So the post office paid the one installment, and then they never paid any more. And now the bill has expired. Oh, really? I thought they were still. Uh, oh, that's interesting. No, no, they paid the one installment, and then the lawyers for the post office looked at what would be the penalty, and they because they were thinking, huh, we'd gladly pay the penalty if it was only you know if it was less. So they realized, no, in the bill it says there is no penalty. There is no penalty for non-payment. So they, they only paid the one year, and then they didn't pay anymore. My source on that, this was a discussion on the Norman Goldman show a long time ago. So I don't know where the sources are for that, but that's, that's where I got that information. Yeah, I was going to ask you for that because because my memory is that it was five billion and that they've been paid that they paid it for a decade. But you know, it, I, you know, I've seen so many different stories characterizing it in so many different ways. I'll have to do you know a deep dive, and if anybody has the details, the very specific details on that, please tweet them to me. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 